The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. privilege as we continue into this Advent season to look at the Word of God together. And we're in Mark. Mark chapter 6. We come uh, tonight as we're working through the narrative of Mark's gospel to verse 14 of chapter 6 in one of the only episodes in the gospel that is not uh, directly uh, or, or about Jesus. Uh, Mark, as, as does Matthew, pauses in his narrative of the life of Christ Uh, to summarize the story of John the Baptist's death. And uh, Mark takes us down this this little rabbit trail, if you will, into the the life of John, uh, because it helps explain the current opinions uh, about Jesus that are going around Galilee. Jesus has come into Galilee and amazed his hometown with his teaching. Uh, His disciples have gone uh, out and come back with tales of power and miracles done in his name. And so everyone's asking, who is this Jesus? And as Mark talks about uh, what the the possible options are that people are entertaining, uh, he goes into the the death of John the Baptist to explain uh, one of the uh, key options. So if you would, uh, follow along as I read Mark 6, 14 through 29. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. And some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he's Elijah. And others said, he's a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. But she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. And when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half my kingdom. So she went out, and she said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. The king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and he beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. Let's pray. 
God, this is a passage of your word that you have spoken to us. I pray that you'd guide our hearts, minds, and our thoughts as we listen to you tonight. In Christ's name, amen. If we were going to have uh, sort of a, a corporate confessional time, my guess is that each one of us could think back over the course of our life, and, and perhaps many of us wouldn't have to think uh, back too far, and we could remember a specific time when we knew we were guilty of doing something wrong, but, but maybe we hadn't admitted yet that we had, had done the wrong we knew we'd committed. What's our response when we know we're guilty? When our conscience is pricked, we know we have done something wrong, and yet we try to ignore it. Don't, don't we, we react by, by trying to ignore the nagging of our conscience? Um, I, I was thinking back to times when I was younger, and, and you knew you had done something wrong, but you weren't sure if your parents knew you'd done it yet. And, and you sort of, you walked through the house a little bit on eggshells and you were, you, were, you were listening for the tone of voice that your parents had or you were watching for the look on your face and, and you'd see a certain look and you'd think, oh no, they know, they found out. Or, or you'd hear the tone of voice and, and your conscience is telling you you're guilty, you're guilty and now they, better, they probably know it too. And you know, maybe, maybe they didn't have any idea but, but just your conscience would weight down upon you by the little looks and glances and tones you'd hear. I uh, remember reading one of uh, Dostoevsky's famous novels, Crime and Punishment. And Crime and Punishment details uh, the consequences one man endures by having to live with his guilty conscience. Uh, the main character, uh, a guy by the name of Raskolnikov, decides to steal a watch in order to sell it and get money. And, and he steals it, but in the process, uh, an old lady and her daughter see him, and so he kills them. And the, the novel takes us through this, this series of sickness, rage, uh, uh, despair, um, uh, depression that Raskolnikov goes through. And he's laying on his bed and, and he'll hear steps on the hall of the maid coming to bring him his tea. And he's sure it's the police coming to, to capture him. Or he'll pick up the morning newspaper every morning and expecting to read his name across the front as the discovered murderer of these, of these two ladies. And when we sin and we know it, our conscience is at work accusing us, even as our heart and our minds often try desperately to protect us and excuse us. Well, here in Mark chapter 6, Jesus has come into Galilee, and Galilee is the jurisdiction of Herod. And so as Jesus comes into Galilee, and everyone is debating who, who is this Jesus, uh, Herod gets wind of, of Jesus, what he's doing, and of this debate of, of who is this guy. Is, is he Elijah, who was promised to come? Is he a prophet, like one of the prophets of old? Is he John the Baptist, raised from the dead? Well, when Herod hears about Jesus' preaching and teaching ministry, uh, Herod immediately sides with the most unlikely explanation. Of the options of, of Jesus being Elijah, who was promised from the Old Testament, of Jesus being a prophet like prophets of old, or of Jesus being a resurrected dead man, the resurrected dead man was by far the most unlikely of options, and yet Herod, as soon as he hears about Jesus, seems confident that this must be John who has risen to life. Herod immediately declared, this is John whom I killed. He's back. 
And uh, if you look at the Greek here, this I, this, this is John whom I beheaded is sort of an emphatic I. It's an, it's an I of guilt. This is the guy I killed, and here he is back again. This is, this is Herod's guilty conscience condemning him as he sees Jesus uh, in his ministry coming into Galilee. You know, if you, if you think about the story, we're in, we're in first century Rome here. We're talking about Herod, uh, one of the rulers uh, of the Roman Empire in this small corner, perhaps. This is a guy who had no trouble killing people. He had probably overseen the execution of many, many people. So the surprising thing about this story is that Herod feels the weight of guilt that he does when it comes to John the Baptist. Surely, surely we don't have record of him feeling this level of guilt about everyone whose uh, execution he oversees. But Mark rehearses this story, this story to give us some idea of how John's death came about. And in the process, he explains why Herod might be plagued with the guilt that he is and what happens to a conscience weighted down by guilt. So, so let's look through this together. And If you look at the story, beginning really in, in verse 17, we learn, okay, Herod had seized John and put him in prison because John had condemned Herod's adulterous marriage to a woman named Herodias. Now, as just a a little background, Herod uh, had gone to Rome, to the city of Rome, and while he was in Rome, he met Herodias, who was the wife of his half-brother Philip. So uh, here's Herod in Rome, here's Herodias in Rome. They they strike up uh, a relationship, and Herod uh, persuades Herodias to reject Philip, to divorce him and leave him, in order to marry Herod. And Herod, in turn, divorces, rejects, and puts away his own wife so that he can marry Herodias. So Herod sort of uh, orchestrates two divorces in order for this relationship uh, to come together. Well, uh, we know that John, uh, in his ministry, has not held back in calling all people to repentance. He's called the Pharisees a brood of vipers and called them to repent. He's called the, the, the Jewish people to repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And so it shouldn't surprise us too much that he calls on Herod to repent as well. Repent, Herod. What you've done is wrong. And he condemns uh, this seduction, this divorce, and this remarriage. And Herod's response, of course, when, uh, when anyone would call out a king and condemn his actions, the natural response is to put that person in prison. And that's, what, and that's what Herod does. But it's interesting that Herod would put him in prison but not kill him. In fact, Mark, in, in a fascinating comment, goes so far as to say not only did Herod not kill John, Herod is actually protecting John in prison. Yes, he imprisons him, uh, but uh, against the grudge of Herodias, uh, Herod continues to fear John and to protect him. Apparently... Um, uh, Herod had his, his reasons for, for keeping John uh, around. And it's interesting, Matthew and Mark give slightly different explanations for why Herod would imprison him but not kill him, and I think both of them are at play. Mark indicates that Herod feared John. Herod feared John knowing that he was a righteous man, and so he kept him safe. There's a sort of fear that Herod has of, this man is righteous and holy, and how dare I kill him? I might not like what he's saying, so I've got to imprison him and try to shut him up. But I know who he is, and so I'm protecting him. That's Mark's account. Matthew 
Matthew indicates that Herod is actually angry enough about being called out for his sin that that he would have killed John, but he knew that everyone in Galilee considered John a prophet, and he was worried about what the people would think of him. And so to protect his own name, he keeps John alive. However, we sort of combine these motives at play in Herod's heart, and certainly both seem to be at play, what Mark does is give us this phrase. He gives us this phrase that so beautifully describes Herod. Herod, this this man who hears truth, he's convicted of truth, and yet he's unwilling to give up his sin. Look at look at uh, verse twenty. Look at verse twenty. Herod feared John, knowing he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. And when he heard him, he was greatly perplexed. He was greatly perplexed. What a great phrase to describe Herod hearing John. You know, um, perhaps if you think about it. Um, Here's John proclaiming the truth boldly and with wisdom. And and here's Herod, who has apparently spent most of his life bowing to the opinions and and, and pressure of the the people around him. Perhaps perhaps, um, uh, Herod uh, was, was struck by the freedom of a life lived that's not held captive to the opinions of others. But Herod, Herod, though he hears this truth, And though he is struck by truth, he's unwilling to abandon his new wife. And so his uneasy conscience leaves him in this perplexed state, glad to hear John and yet convicted by John. What will Herod do in this conflicted state? I love love how Kent Hughes put it. Kent Hughes describes Herod here. He says, The truth will make you free, but first the truth will make you miserable. Great truth. And he says, King Herod here stands at the outside fringes of this reality in uncomfortable, perplexed fear. Conviction does not automatically lead to repentance, but it is the first result of coming face to face with God's truth. And here's Herod, face to face with God's truth, uncomfortable on the fringes of misery, knowing his conviction, and yet unwilling to give up his sin. Doesn't this describe the pattern that so many of us follow? We take a certain pleasure in doing something wrong. And we hear the truth of God's word come and it convicts us. And we know we have sinned. We know we've crossed the line of God's word. It stings our conscience. And God's word goes further in, in, in not only convicting us and stinging our conscience, but it offers us a chance and a path of freedom, of forgiveness, of restoration, of hope. And yet we're unwilling to give up whatever trinket of this world has captured our hearts to receive the freedom of the gospel. And so we sit there spinning our wheels, clinging to our sin, and refusing to take the freedom that God offers in repentance. Here's where Herod is, just like many of us. Well, Herod, Herod may have thought he could continue in this perplexed limbo of sort of enjoying hearing John but not taking any action, but Herodias has other plans. She's not going to allow uh, Herod to remain in this limbo. Herodias is looking for a way to get rid of John. And she knows that the same sins that have hold of Herod's heart will give her an opportunity to take John's life. And and the opportunity comes at Herod's birthday. Herod, uh, the text tells us, is feasting with his nobles, enjoying his birthday. And Herodias' daughter dances for the party and pleases the crowd. Now there's... Worth noting, some suggest that this may have been an inappropriate or immodest dance, perhaps a dance with sexual overtones. It's 
possible, but nothing in the word or the context or text requires this. The dance, whatever it was, was pleasing, pleasing to a slightly or maybe more than slightly drunk Herod. And so in his state, in the party, he makes this rash promise to uh, Herodias' daughter. Ask whatever you want, he says. Ask whatever you want, and I'll give it to you. And he seals it with this, this oath of up to half my kingdom, and you can have it. And here's, here's Herodias' moment. Herod's trapped. Herod's trapped. She uh, sparks her daughter. Um, and of course, her daughter, her own future insecurity is most likely tied to her mother's security at the palace. And so Herodias, wouldn't be surprising, was all too eager to, to oblige Let's get the head of John the Baptist and secure our spot here in the palace. And, uh, and, and Herodias knows that Herod's trapped here because either he's going to have to go back on his word in front of all of the nobles, and we know he doesn't like to look foolish in front of the people. He values people's opinion of him. Or, or Herodias can have John the Baptist's head very literally. And so we have this request for John the Baptist's uh, head on a platter. And I think the text indicates that Herod immediately regrets his offer. In verse 26, we're told that the king was exceedingly sorry. Exceedingly sorry. This is a phrase of real, of real sorrow and, and regret. Um, a couple commentator, one commentator in particular noted that this phrase of exceeding sorrow is only used one other time in the New Testament, and it describes Jesus in Gethsemane. Now, that's not to suggest that Herod is going through something like Christ. It's to say that this phrase expresses real agony and guilt. Herod regrets what he has done. But Herod's old idol, that same sin that's been at work throughout his life, the love of public praise and opinion leads him to keep going through his regret and his pain to commit a worse crime than the first, the murder of of John the Baptist. Well, I want to... I want to just comment briefly on this story. Three things, three things that this narrative of Herod's conscience faced with the truth of God through the mouth of John the Baptist, three things this narrative shows us. First, this passage highlights the importance of acting on the word of God and not just hearing it. Herod, we are told, heard John gladly. We don't know the full context of this statement, but it seems that, that Herod heard John on multiple occasions. When he heard him, he heard him gladly. Maybe, maybe Herod even called John sometimes and, and heard him speak. We don't know fully. Um, but when he heard John, he heard him gladly. He respected John as a righteous man and even protected him. And yet, for all of his respecting John and enjoying hearing John, he was not willing to end his unlawful marriage or repent from his adultery. Herod falls squarely into the James 1.22 pattern. The man who is a hearer of the word but not a doer. That is Herod as he hears the word here. This is such a, a sobering warning to me that there can be men and women, perhaps even those of us who, who come into church and sit in the pews, who hear the word of God preached gladly, who like to hear the preacher who, who give compliments and enjoy hearing and respecting and honoring the word of God preached and yet, and yet do nothing to change their lives. You know, perhaps some of us even feel convicted about our sin. You know, there's almost something of a catharsis, uh, a, a cleansing or healing when, we, when we, we know we've done something wrong and we're convicted of it and we can sort of walk out knowing we've been convicted almost as if it's a mark of our spirituality just to feel convicted. 
even if we don't do anything else about it. As I was preparing for this sermon, I asked myself a question. I asked myself the question, how many times have I listened to a sermon and felt convicted about something in my life? And the answer is I could think of a number of times when I was convicted. And then I asked the follow-up myself the follow-up question, how many times have I heard a sermon and then gone out and changed my life because of that sermon? And I had to say, a lot fewer times have I changed my life than the number of times I've gone out feeling convicted. I wonder, I wonder how many of us could say that we delight to hear the word of God preached, and yet we find it hard sometimes to change our life in accordance with what the word is calling us to do. This is a summons to examine our hearts. It's a spur to live the repentance and righteousness that God's word calls for. Just a quick reminder, though, this text is not just a summons to, to, to change our life, to get better, change or else. It's a summons to hear the hope that God's word offers to convicted consciences. To convicted consciences, God's word says, repent, and there is hope. There is a hope of restoration, of reconciliation. There is even a hope of resurrection through the very Jesus who has piqued Herod's interest and started off this whole story. To convicted consciences like Herod's and ours, the man is walking at the beginning of the story, Jesus Christ, who offers hope. We need to remember that. So first, may we act on the word of God, not just hear it. Second, this passage shows that a great sin can dull consciences. A great sin can dull our conscience and lead to death. You know, Herod's conscience was perplexed when he lived under this guilty gladness of hearing John preach. But the gladness is gone and only the guilt remains in Herod's conscience as he lives under the weight of John's murder. Now, J.C. Ryle, the 19th century commentator, had this to say about Herod in this passage. I loved his description. He said, Herod knew that John was a just and holy man. Herod even heard John gladly. But there was one thing Herod would not do. He would not cease from adultery. He would not give up Herodias. And so he ruined his soul forever in order to keep Herodias for a brief time. Let us take warning from Herod's case, Ryle says. Let us keep back nothing. Cleave to no favorite vice. Spare nothing that stands between us and salvation. Let us often look within and make sure that there is no darling lust or pet transgression which Herodias-like is murdering our souls. Isn't this a beautiful call to repentance from J.C. Ryle? What a striking call to confession and repentance, to self-examination, to pursue righteousness. And I don't, I don't know as each of us look in our hearts, I don't know what, what the pet sin the darling lust, the favorite vice you might find or I might find in in our hearts. But I can think of so many stories of men and women, even pastors and missionaries, whose marriages, whose lives, and whose ministries were ruined because of a pet sin, a favorite vice that they were unwilling to give up. And so, brothers and sisters, may may we take this warning Take this warning from the life of Herod not to let a sin remain in our lives that could destroy us and hinder us from coming to Christ. Well, finally, 
Finally, this passage shows the danger of being driven by what others think of us. You know, Herod's actions toward John had been shaped by public opinion from the beginning. At least to some extent, Herod's death, Herod's death order was the result of his fear of what his guests would say if he protected John. Here's Herod, sitting at his banquet, thinking, there's no way I should kill John, but what will people say of me if I go back on my word? What will people say of me? Perhaps all of Galilee will be mocking the king who went back on his word just for the sake of a silly man who wears camel hair and is sitting in the dungeon. What are the words of mocking Herod might have said? And so, for the sake of what people think, Herod went through with the murder. Just briefly quote Kent Hughes, who summarizes Herod's actions so well when he wrote, Herod's conscience had begun to live, but he stifled it because of what he feared others would think. There are many today who are doing just the same thing. How many people's consciences have been awakened to eternal things and to their own sinful plight, and yet they've buried all of the conviction because they were afraid of what their friends would think or what their family would think or what their fiancé or their spouse or their fellow students would think. Some spend their entire lives basing their decisions on what other people think. More people than we realize have lost eternity because of what others would think of them. Is this, is this opinion the opinion of others keeping you and I from following your instincts and the witness of the Holy Spirit? A great question from Kent Hughes. You know, there are so many ways between social media and other things that are easy targets that heighten our sensitivity to what other people think of us. They highlight our image, our desire to protect uh, what people think of us. But the problem of bowing to the opinions of others is, is millennia old. And we see it at work in Herod. Herod's example is a reminder that public opinion may seem important, but it can lead to a conscience weighted with guilt and to many other consciences. You think of the contrast. Herod, bowing to others' opinion, and John, who proclaims boldly and clearly the truth of God, even if his head might be the consequence. John was rooted on the rock of God's call, God's will for his life. And so, I wonder for us, how do we consider the opinions of those around us? You know, the opinions around us don't really usually mean life or death. It may mean being made fun of for not participating in an inappropriate conversation. It may mean being ridiculed or left out because we don't watch certain shows or attend certain events. Maybe it would even mean being fired for refusing to fudge numbers in a book or doing something else that your boss asks. But the strength... The strength to do what is right, the strength to do what is right comes from considering with what our Savior will say. What will our Savior say? Because in the end, even if our head is served up on a platter, what is that compared to eternity? Eternity and the good opinion, the good commendation of our Savior. And so here's the question. Here's the question for you and I tonight as we go away from this example of Herod. Will we let the Word of God convict our hearts And will we act on that conviction? Will we respond to the conviction of the word of God or will we protect our sinful pleasures? Will the question, who is Jesus? That's the question Herod was responding to, remember, at the beginning? Will the question, who is Jesus, spark a defensive or guilty answer as it did in Herod? Or will it call our hearts to repentance and surrender in order to find joy, forgiveness, hope, righteousness, 
reconciliation, and the mighty Lord who stands ready to save. How will you respond tonight to Jesus, what he has done and what he is doing? Let's pray. God, I thank you for sending Christ your Savior. Christ who comes, yes, to convict the world of of sin, but in so doing to offer offer hope of salvation forever. Thank you for Christ who meets guilty consciences with the healing balm of his blood and his body shed. May we find our hope in Christ tonight. May we find our hope in this baby that we're, we're thinking about focusing on and celebrating as we move towards Christmas. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.